Welcome to How We Win. All over the country, people are doing extraordinary things. We're giving you the tools that you need to make a difference right now, right from your living room. The best antidote to anxiety is action. Can you believe there are 97 days until the most important election of our lives? I can't believe it. Less if you count the start of vote by mail, (laughs) (laughs) Um, which we should. With your help, we're going to win back all the houses. That's right. Joining us today for our show is Ravi Gupta, Obama alum, co-founder of Arena, and co-host of the Majority 54 podcast, along with Jason Kander. We talk about how Arena is training a new generation of candidates and campaign professionals, and how Ravi is working to reach red state voters that will flip these key seats in November, which once again is 97 days away from now. I'm Steve Pearson. And I'm Mariah Craven. And this this is is How We Win. Yeah, we are inside 100 days till E-Day. Mariah, how are you feeling? I'm feeling fired up and ready to go. I mean, we have a lot of work to do. I used to work with a campaign manager who would say, you can do anything for 97 days. (laughs) <laughs> and then he'd say, you could do anything for 96 days. And so um, we don't have that much time, but we we can do anything in this amount of time. And we can make a huge difference. So yeah, get to work, everybody. Get to work, everybody. This is it. This is, you know, just a little over three months to go. And I was thinking back to when this all started. So and this is more for people like me because I know you've been uh, working on campaigns for a long time, long before Trump was elected. But for people like me and a lot of people I'm guessing who are listening to this show, we really felt the trauma of Trump getting elected and that's what motivated us to do something. Mm -hmm. And um, I have learned so much in this journey and my life has been improved in so many ways because of these incredible activists that I've been able to forge relationships with and become friends with you know mm. my this community has been amazing i've learned about local politics i'm active in the california democratic party now i'm an elected assembly delegate um i serve as chair on a committee i do all this great stuff that i never would have done before but at a fundamental level I jumped in because I was freaked out when Trump was elected and my family was devastated and scared and we needed to do something. So what was that thing? I didn't know. It, at the time it was, okay, we got to take back the house. We've got to put a check on Trump. So we dove into that and we did all that work and we organized and volunteers showed up like you know never before for a midterm election. We had this blue wave. Thank God we, we elected all these Democrats, took back the house, were able to put that check on Trump. But in the interim, all the things that have happened, like Trump keeps showing us who he is. It gets worse and worse. We're going to talk about some of that stuff today. Is what's going on in, in Portland and other cities? Barr was just testifying. The you know we're we're seeing more violence uh, from this unnamed, unmarked federal force. It, it's getting worse. It's getting scarier. It's feeding into all of our fears. But here we are, months away from the goal that many of us just set out to do. Like the reason we got into this Hmm. was to defeat Trump, was to get him out of office. And that time is finally upon us right now. And we have to make sure that we turn that that aspiration into a reality. Hmm. That's such a great reminder of what kicked all this this off for so many people. It feels like it's been such a long time, and it has. Yeah. Uh, and a lot, a lot's happened we, as a country. We've we've been through a lot of trauma, but the end goal is in sight. I, I mean, there's never an end goal. Let's let's be realistic. The, but but one of our our big goals is in sight. And I also just want to highlight one thing that you said about the community that you have built doing this work. Mm-hmm. That's so important. And I think you know if people are trying to figure out how to get plugged into this stuff. You've been at home for months. You're feeling a little bit isolated. This really is an opportunity to get involved and start expanding your universe. Um, 
And it makes such a, a difference in life and in the work that we do. And if you're if you're waiting to dive in, uh, I would encourage you to dive in now, less than a hundred days out. The other piece of this, and the, and this is why the the timing again is so critical, is that the U.S. has millions of cases of coronavirus right mm-hmm. now, a quarter of a million. COVID deaths, a really grim milestone. If you ever needed a way to understand how the people we elect have a life or death impact on us, this, this really is that moment. The policies, the budgets, the decisions that they make are devastating people right now. Um, And we've, and we've kind of been left to our own devices at the state level, at the community level. And um, that, that's not good enough. We have the ability to be better than that. Yeah. Uh, I mean, Trump has decided to play politics and think first and foremost about how uh, it was going to affect him rather than deal with a deadly virus for which we do not currently have a vaccine. It's abhorrent and immoral and uh, to say that it's a lack of leadership is the greatest understatement in the history of our presidencies. <sighs> I'm just, I'm, you know, I'm kind of sick of talking about Trump. You know, three months. Let's get this guy out of there. <laughs> you know, you know who I'll be glad to see go with him is Attorney General William Barr. Yes, his henchman who, as we're recording this, is testifying before Congress. And I feel like I've watched more congressional testimonies and hearings in the last few years than at any other point in, uh, in my adult life. And man, are these, these, these things dep- starting to get depressing. Ugh. I know it's been so it's it feels like it's been a long time since Jim Jordan's yelled at me with a bunch of crazy conspiracy theories and names all at once so that no one has time to even process all of that bullshit. And uh, and I didn't like it. I didn't like him yelling at me. I wish he would shut his face up. (laughs) That's how I feel. (laughs) You know, it's 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 strange because Bill Barr's face reflects that it seems like. (laughs) He wishes these people would shut up too, um, but obviously he—I I, I don't think he's answering. So far, I haven't seen him answering questions in a particularly helpful way for anybody. Um, but it seems like he's also aware of like the stagecraft that's going into this. Where absolutely, uh, really, like these members of Congress aren't even asking. Many of them aren't asking good questions. They're just doing that thing that's annoying whenever you go to a town hall or a community meeting where someone says they have a question, but they really just want to make a comment yeah. about something insane. <laughs> and that's pretty typical of, you know, especially when you have a national audience and platform to make statements and posture and look at me kind of that, you know, that's sure. elected official 101, I suppose. But yeah. Um, you know, Attorney General Barr is actually a terrible liar. We were talking about this beforehand. I want to play poker with him because uh, everyone watch him. He does this eye flutter thing where so when when he's being uh, attacked and he knows he's going to lie or he says something that's untrue or when the Republicans are saying some crazy conspiracy theory that he's got to like put a poker face on for because he knows that it's batshit crazy, but he's got to go along with it. He does this like tries to make his eyes dead and then his his eyelids flutter like a million times crazy. So watch for the eye flutter. That's his tell um, for anyone that ever plays poker with him. You're going to make a lot of money off that. To keep an eye out for the eye flutter. If I ever run into him in Vegas. (laughs) But more and more to the point, (laughs) the audaciousness of his statement about um, his job to serve law and order and make law and order fair for everybody when Breonna Taylor's killers are still free is um, it's beyond the pale. Absolutely. But I mean, I think that's what the, like that's what the reelection game plan for the entire Trump administration is, is like 
let's lean into the law and order thing. Not necessarily law and order for everybody. Not law and order for the scary people. Right. But law and order for the couple in the mansion that gets to point their guns at everybody. Like, right. those people we need to make feel better. But Not who- the Breonna Taylors and Elijah McLeans of the world. Yeah, but and and who else are the scary people that you're talking about? Is it the moms that are getting batoned by police in Portland? Is it that 14-year-old girl that was tackled by these unmarked federal forces? You know, I mean, are they the scary people? These peaceful protesters that are that are out there? Yes, because they have opinions that are different from right. Trump's. So so yes, yes, clearly they're fascist terrorists. Everyone has seen what's been going on in Portland and the federal response to that, which has exasperated the the problem even more. Um, the local and state officials from uh, Portland and Oregon are asking the federal uh, officials to leave because they've just made things worse. Right. This is really scary. This is uh, what Trump is, you know, he said he's going to start deploying these tactics in other cities too. It's part of his voter suppression. It's part of his disenfranchisement. He's trying to stoke fear and more tension. But I'm going to segue right into our reasons for hope because it is not going to work. It is going to backfire because of the wall of moms, because of the leaf blower dads, because of every individual citizen who does not stand for that, instead stands up against it and joins these protests. We have seen a little bit of a wane in the Black Lives Matter protest in the last month, and now people are standing up again because of this federal aggression. Uh, we're not going to stand for it. We're going to make our voices heard, and we're especially going to make our voices heard by getting more people to volunteer and by voting all of these fascists out of office. Well said. I'm a little fired up today. <laughs> I, I like it. An extra cup of coffee before we recorded this. <laughs> I think that's great. So your reason for hope is the wall of moms and leaf blower dads. <laughs> right? <laughs> How could we not be hopeful? I know. It gives me goosebumps when I when I see them out there. And I yeah. just, you know, yeah. But fear, like fear, genuine fear for for all the folks out there. But. Yeah. Um, gratitude that they're standing together with locked arms. So what about you? What What's your reason for hope this week? My reason for hope this week is going to be the radical monarchs. So the radical monarchs is like a kind of, they're not the girl, they're not affiliated with the Girl Scouts. In fact, they used to be called the radical brownies and Girl Scouts were like, can't do that. So um, the Radical Monarchs is a, is a group for young girls that started in Oakland. It's for black and brown girls to come together and learn about social justice and earn badges for participating in social justice activities in their communities. And um, there is a new documentary out about them that I, I have a list of things to watch for Hopefully when I'm on maternity leave, I'll have time to watch, get caught up and watch some things. Um, It's at the top of my list. It's an amazing group of girls that I've been reading about and seeing on the front lines of protest for the last few years. And I'm glad we're getting an inside look at them. And, you know, one of the things that I always admire is when people come to their activism and understanding and awareness of of social justice early in life. It's something that I didn't understand or was exposed to until much like way into my adulthood. And so it's always exciting to see what the kids are learning. And we talk all the time with our guests about, you know, it's the young people that inspire them. Well, Mm -hmm. let's take a look at what these young people are learning that um, is making them so inspirational. That's amazing. Yeah. I love that. Thank you for sharing that. Let's get everyone into action right now. We are inside of 100 days, so you need to take these calls to action seriously. Uh, We have a great one coming up this Saturday, August 1st, Mm -hmm. is the Training to Win Conference. And uh, Mariah and I will both be there. Mariah is going to be 
hosting the opening, which will feature Speaker Pelosi, Representative Schiff, uh, Representative Bass, Mm -hmm. and uh, Dan Pfeiffer from Pod Save America. They'll all be uh, giving opening remarks. Then there's going to be a bunch of different training blocks that people can choose from on organizing skills, how to be effective in, in the digital organizing that we're mm-hmm. doing, how to have effective conversations with voters, all that important stuff that you need to know and be good at to help us win. And then uh, there'll be a great uh, panel at the end that Mariah and I are facilitating with founders of Swing Left, um, Indivisible, Sister District, Women's March, and Move On. It's going to be awesome. The link will be on our page, swingleft.org slash podcast. We encourage everyone to sign up. It's free, and it's going to be a great event this Saturday. Free and virtual. And virtual. You're right, of course. You don't have to go anywhere, which you know will suit everyone who's not going anywhere. <laughs> Yeah, so I'm super excited about that. And in the meantime, don't forget to encourage three friends, family members, strangers who you know you somehow got hold of of their cell phone number to subscribe to the How We Win podcast. Um, it's our July subscriber push. What you do it, when you share this podcast is you're sharing tools tips and inspiration with other people who will join you in the important work that has to take place over the next 97 days. So definitely send folks the link to the podcast and encourage them to listen. That's right. Just a few more days in July left for our July subscriber push. I feel like I'm on NPR right now, but um, (laughs) we're not asking for money. We just need uh, more people to jump in and do this work. So Yeah, this podcast is free. All we ask is that you share it. (laughs) And speaking of sharing inspiration and training and having knowledge about how to have effective conversation with, you know, people in red states that we need to show up and vote, we got so much great insight from Ravi Gupta, and we're excited to share that interview with you. Yeah, let's take a listen. Ravi Gupta is the co-founder of The Arena, whose mission is to convene, train, and support the next generation of candidates and campaign staff. Before co-founding The Arena, Ravi served as special assistant and speech writer to Susan Rice, U.S. Ambassador to the United Nations and top VP candidate. He also spent two years working on Barack Obama's 2008 presidential campaign, serving as assistant to chief strategist David Axelrod during the general election. In 2012, he was named to the Forbes 30 Under 30 list, which is very cool, right? Uh, Ravi, thanks so much for taking the time to join us. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. Absolutely. First of all, how did you get your start? What got you into politics and organizing? Yeah, I think there's a few different sort of starting points, depending on how you think about it. You know, one is that I have a, a mom and a dad. I was raised by my mom, but for a brief period of time when my parents were still together, um, that I can remember the, my parents were split politically. So my dad is a Republican and my mom is a Democrat. And so I, I kind of came up hearing them argue. I remember that the Dukakis election, I must've been about five at that time. (laughs) It was like the worst fight I remember my parents having up to that point was over, uh, Dukakis versus Bush. (laughs) And so, uh, it was, so I kind of grew up just around uh, people caring a lot about politics, even though both of my parents are um, medical professionals. Hmm. But I would say what really shifted my thinking was college, where my freshman year was 9-11, and then the Iraq War and Afghanistan Wars shortly after that, and then Bush's re-election. So I was just in college at a supercharged political time. And so I was going to school just to become a doctor. Um, and follow in my parents' footsteps, but um, I quickly got activated by uh, the political climate around me and wound up pursuing law and politics instead. And then when I was in law school, uh, Senator Obama was contemplating a run for president, so I jumped on his exploratory committee and then stayed with him for a while. Uh, and uh, as your listeners might know, he won that election. Um, so it's been, it's been a yeah, journey I ever that. since. I remember that. Yeah. 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 Um, 
tell me if this is too personal, but did your parent, did it feel like politics in your house was competitive? And then when you ended up on one side, was your, was your dad like, oh man. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I don't think he was, I don't think it was like a disappointment like that because, you know, I have an older brother who is, I don't know if he'd consider himself a a Republican, but he is, he is definitely on the right. Uh, And so my dad at least has that, you know, (laughs) Uh, but I would say the competitive part of it was more during some of these periods of time, like the Iraq war, I used to study to go home from college. Like I would study up on issues so that when I was around the table with my brother and when I would see my dad, uh, him too, like I would just be studied up so I could argue with my dad, my brother, and my uncles about these things. Um, and I would study for family gatherings like I would study for a test. <laughs> so that laid the groundwork for, you know, learning about persuasion and, uh, and moving voters in red states. So there, there you go. That's right, you know, which is the subject of this podcast that we now have in Jarvis 54, uh, this podcast that I co-host with uh, Jason Kander, you know, and, and our whole goal is to have better conversations with people who disagree with us. And it's it's never been harder. <laughs> Interesting. Yeah. So how is, how is tell, tell us about the podcast and, and how it, it's going, which is, spoiler alert, it's going really well. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think, I think we're, you know, doing a podcast with Jason Kander is probably like, like, you know, having a successful podcast with Jason Kander is kind of like the equivalent <laughs> of becoming governor of Texas when your dad is George H.W. Bush. You know, it's like, you know, that statement of like being born on third base. It's like I've been born into the podcast world on third base. And so really, like he gets all the credit for this because he built up such an incredible audience a few years ago. Mm-hmm. And, you know, our job was to activate that audience and grow it, which is what we've been doing over the past few weeks. And so, you know, we're we're ranked in the top 20 for news right now in iTunes and um, have had some great guests like Stacey Abrams came on and co-hosted with us last week. And, uh, but, but pretty more decent than co-host, that, but, just saying. Yes, she was amazing. Uh, but I would say more than anything else, what I've really enjoyed about this podcast is uh, people from all over the country reaching out on social media and email, sharing their stories about their attempts to uh, – to persuade people around them. And it's just really inspiring, you know, people who are not in New York, like I am, you know, who are in all sorts of places around this country that people don't really think of as being progressive enclaves, but who are fighting the good fights Mm. and trying their very best to move people to believe uh, in, in social justice. Are there any, Things that you learned or experienced in your early campaign work and organizing work that you're now having a chance to talk to people about and teach people about on Majority 54? Well, I would say that the biggest thing from my camp, my early campaign days was, you know, for Obama, if we're, we're focusing on that, is the what drew me to that campaign and what united many of us who were called to work for him and were volunteer for him was this belief, this sort of generous spirit about America, this generosity towards people who may disagree with you. Mm. And this belief that there still is this American project worth saving. And I'm not going to be naive to say that I am as optimistic as I was back then about how quickly we would get to where we need to go. Mm -hmm. But I haven't given up on this idea of an America that's more united and more just than the one that came before us. It certainly is way harder than I, if if you would have asked me in January, 2009, I, I could not have imagined how, how much harder it is to get to a place of, social justice, racial justice, economic justice than what I w- would have thought at that time. But, you know, Majority 54 is, is, is in a way a continuation of that conversation, mm. saying that even if it's going to be 20 times harder than we thought, we still need to run a country together. You know, we're going to be, as we've seen with COVID, you know, there, 
there are Republican doctors and Democratic doctors and Republican nurses and Democratic nurses and independents and non-affiliated people teaching in classrooms across the country and serving on the beat in our police forces and going to church uh, together and walking uh, the same streets together. And so, you know, in my cases, you know, we're in a family together. And so if somebody gets sick, we take care of people together. And if I get sick, they take care of me. If they get sick, I take care of them. So we still have this country and these communities that we still need to run together. Mm-hmm. So we can't abandon this project of at least trying to create some sense of a shared vision. And that's, that's as hard as it's ever been. Yeah. That reminds me, we, we had um, Urshad Manji on our show um, about a month or so ago, uh, who wrote the, a, a great book called Don't Label Me. And, and she talks about how important it is to reach out and understand people that you don't agree with, or at least attempt to uh, make those bridges. Because if, if uh, politically, if we're just shifting power without getting any buy-in at all from the other side, then um, it's just the gears of this keep going around and around with all of us just pulling from our own sides. And, and we have to get some buy-in for us to actually build lasting political change in our country. Um, so I'm glad you you are doing that work. It is, it is so hard. I, I try to approach it from a place of, of empathy. It's very, very difficult right now, especially when we have someone at the top who is uh, stoking the fear and the hatred and uh, straight up fascism. Yeah. yeah and, and one more point on that. I have this weird combination of views and I, I suspect that there's a major contradiction in here somewhere, but I believe that we, I believe in that vision that I just talked about of a shared America, Mm -hmm. but I also believe that we've got to absolutely crush our opponents electorally in order to create the shared vision that we need. And so, although I'm committed to having the right kind of conversations, showing a generosity of spirit and humanity and optimism about people who, who have different beliefs, I also believe that we have to maximize our political power and uh, win elections ruthlessly. And then also after we win, have to consolidate our power, whether it's filibuster, Supreme Court, D.C. statehood, Mm -hmm. et cetera. So it's a weird combination of views. (laughs) It's like I want to crush our opposition in the political sphere, in the electoral sphere, but on a person-to-person, citizen-to-citizen level, I want more humanity. Mm-hmm. And I think the, I think Joe Biden as president is a perfect example here. Like we, if we do everything right between now and the election, or enough things right, we will win. And Joe Biden will be a progressive president, but he will also be kind and generous to people who disagree with him. He will wake up every single day saying, "I'm a president for all Americans, not just Democrats." Right. And I think that would be a huge progress. Yeah, it'll be a massive change. It, it well, it'll be. A <laughs> I mean, that's what's the, well. That's what's always bothered me the most about Trump is the like he clearly doesn't see himself as a president for everybody. Even even if you give him the benefit of the doubt and assume that he's doing what he thinks is best for the country, he's doing it for a very very small group of people, and the rest of us can go screw ourselves. Right. Um, <laughs> Well, it's a good segue, so, you know, to how we how we crush them. So yeah, <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. So speaking of crushing, let's talk about the arena. <laughs> um, <laughs> good segue. Yeah. <laughs> uh, tell us about it and what it's doing in the current election cycle. Yeah, so we found an arena right around the time that y'all founded Swing Left. So right mm-hmm. after Trump's election in twenty sixteen. Uh, at the time, I was down south running an education nonprofit. And uh, I just, you know, the day of the election, after the election in 2016, I was called in to run a town hall meeting of some of my high school students. They were asking really tough questions that I didn't have answers to. You know, are they going to deport us? Are they bringing back Jim Crow? Mm. Is Pence serious about this LGBTQ conversion therapy, et cetera? And I, I did what I could to answer their questions and then to admit where I didn't know things. But then I left and in the parking lot, just started calling up former colleagues from the Obama administration and, and elsewhere to say, 
what can we do to help turn this ocean liner of democracy around? Mm -hmm. And that's where Reno was born. And we started with just one convening in Nashville three and a half weeks later. So it's December, 2016. And at that convening, some of the people who went on to start Swing Left were there and a bunch of people who came on to uh, run for office eventually, like Lauren Underwood and Alessandra Biaggi, uh, Siraj Patel. There were just a ton of people there who uh, would go on to become that next generation of leadership. And then there were people who were already part of the previous next generation. So Jason Kander gave our keynote, and that's actually where I met him. Oh. Uh, and where we started this journey to be to do the podcast together. So it's just a beautiful gathering, and it inspired us heading into the holidays. You know, this is a, a very scary holiday period. You know, 2016 holidays, yeah. and then and then we kind of came out after the first summit, and then we kept doing the convenings. But really, what I think where the rubber hit the road was where we started a fellowship program for candidates around the country who needed extra help, who were mostly first-time candidates. You know, I think one of the only exceptions we made was for Stacey Abrams, who's obviously not a first-time candidate. But, we know, you know, candidates like Lauren Underwood and Max Rose and mm-hmm. Antonio Delgado and um, Gina Ortiz-Jones, we, we started a fellowship to help those folks field uh, high-quality campaigns and win. And so uh, we did that in 2018, had a lot of success. Then we debriefed with all of our candidates that we worked on in 2018 after the election. And we asked them, you know, what is missing in the ecosystem of support for campaigns right now? And almost everybody named some form of the talent environment Mm. uh, for campaigns as a problem. So whether it's the ability to find high quality folks, like where do people look? You know, up until and just to be clear, when you're talking about talent, you're talking about staffers for their uh, campaigns. Staffers, yes, yeah. Thanks for that. Um, And so, people, you know, up until recently, the the basically the only way you get your resume into the hands of the right person is word of mouth, and you know, it's kind of like these Ivy League networks, ready privileged people hiring other privileged people. So we wanted to take aim and fix that. Hmm. Um, We wanted to fix the training environment because we're hearing that there just wasn't access to strong training opportunities in campaigns. Right. Uh, Cause you know, people who go, who are interested in politics take political science. There isn't a campaign major in most places. So people management of campaigns, et cetera, uh, is not a, the kind of thing that you learn at the university level. And so we, we created what's called the arena Academy where we've now trained over 1100 current and aspiring staffers over the past year. Uh, in seven separate arena academies, now eight separate arena academies. Now we just did one last weekend. Uh, And that academy is, uh, we have two different versions of it. We have 101 Academy, which is, we have different tracks for communication directors, campaign managers, uh, digital directors, data directors, et cetera, where it's a six day training where people really dive deep into an area of expertise, but then also work in uh, interdisciplinary teams on on a simulated campaign. So that's the 101 academies, and now we're in the middle of our 201 academies, which are just more expert-level trainings. And if folks are interested, there are still some academy 201 sessions that they can take advantage of. Um, and if they go to arena-academy.run, uh, that's arena-academy.run, they can access uh, information on – and these are free mm-hmm. uh, usually – uh, or they're either free or highly subsidized, depending on what people apply for. Um, and we always were very generous with scholarships. And because of that, we're able to train and support a diverse applicant pool, both economically, racially, gender. So over 50% of our trainees are people of color, over 60% women. We have huge geographic diversity. I think either every state or almost every state has been represented at these academies. Uh, and so people can go check these out and learn more. We also have a program called Toolbox, which is like our online version of Academy material. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then we have Careers, which is Arena Careers, which is, and all of this, if you do go to arena.run, you could find all this stuff. But we have Arena Careers, which is kind of a LinkedIn for politics. So it, it helps in a, in a small way solve the problem I talked about, about the Ivy League privilege, people exchanging resumes. Like this is a more transparent way to get the right people into the right jobs. And then we also have staff members whose jobs are to go in there and find 
the most talented of our graduates, especially people from underrepresented backgrounds, and help land them jobs in politics. That's that's awesome. That's the the work you're doing is so great. I know a lot of staffers who went through your program and and absolutely love it. And I have to say, uh, personally, I have pilfered a lot of resources from uh, the Arena website. For I was um, program manager for Swing Left Academy, so I was helping develop our our uh, training resources last cycle, and also worked on a congressional campaign as their training director. And um, yeah, I'm not I'm not going to sugarcoat nice. it. I I outright stole your stuff and put in, you know, That's people, what we thought, want. people thought we I was really smart. Do. So <laughs> <laughs> That's the goal. Yeah, we, we, we encourage people to, to, to steal anything that we have. That's our, our mission is to just make sure that campaigns are awesome. Yeah. So uh, that's, that's exactly what we want. And so needed, you know, um, the, the experience that uh, Mariah and I both had, Mariah's executive director of Sea Change, Karen Bass's, um, pack out here in California. With the midterms, we had such a huge influx of volunteer energy, and the campaigns just weren't able to properly train these volunteers, really. They just didn't have the capacity to do it. You know, they're just overwhelmed. And uh, and we're going to have that same issue, I know, I hope, we, we, we must, but for, for this election on a presidential year with Donald Trump on the ticket. So all of these resources are, are really important, and, and I'm so grateful for the orgs that are helping train volunteers too and taking a little bit of the the load off of the campaign staff because they're just overwhelmed. So my question there is in this digital world where everything is upended, like how are we registering voters? We're not knocking on doors right now. We're certainly not going to send volunteers to do that um, this cycle. How are you shifting and what's really working for you digitally right now? Yeah. And, um, and one place I want to point people to is we actually have uh, specific trainings coming up. And if people visit that Arena Academy website, they can we have we have training specifically on this question about how to shift resources from the doors to a more digitally heavy campaigns. Right. So we have a partnership with uh, an organization I'm sure that many of your listeners are familiar with called Acronym. Uh, mm-hmm. We have a series of follow-on trainings where we are helping campaigns make those adjustments. And so the acronym training that we're doing this weekend is about how to best tactically deploy resources digitally uh, in the absence of heavy door-to-door canvassing or any door-to-door canvassing. That right. seems could be the case. And then we have other trainings about how to actually budget properly. So now how do you adjust course uh, in your budget so that you're putting resources in the right place. And this is not official arena party line, what I'm about to say, but this is just my opinion. Great. Is I would be pretty dramatic if I'm a campaign right now, and this is what, you know, any campaign that asks me, I would pretty dramatically and decisively shift my resources away from traditional field to digital campaigning and other forms of advertising, depending on what level you are at right now. The data still says TV works if you're at a certain level especially congressional and above, especially Senate and governor. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, I would do some mixture of digital, like, you know, if you're talking congressional and above, I would do some mixture of digital and TV, probably a little bit more heavily TV than digital, but still pretty heavy, like heavy on both. I, I heard an interview with Rick Wilson from the Lincoln Project, and he was, I, and I might be misquoting it, but I think he was basically saying he would be 60-40 TV digital sounds about right to me, but you know, many people would dis you know, there there are a lot of people who disagree with me on that, but that's just like my current feeling is like sixty percent T V and forty percent digital. If he were and he's talking about the presidential level. Right. Um so it may be different depending on your media environment. But I would go heavy advertising understanding that there's just not a lot you can do right. at the doors. So, you know, obviously you could do a lot with phones and texting and things like that, although there's some tricky changes to the law and regulation around texting that just happened a week or two ago at the FEC level. So I, it's not very sexy thing to say, but I would, I would not be doing a lot of traditional field, uh, even though in a, in a, in a normal environment, I'd be a huge advocate for that. Well, I, I would just tack onto that, what that probably means for, uh, the bulk of our volunteers and listeners, um, 
is how important fundraising is at, at, for this election because you're talking about yeah. very expensive campaign strategies, especially in larger media markets. Um, and so these candidates, especially some of the local legislatures that we're working on and, and these important down-ballot races, don't have the resources to put out a TV ad all the time. So the, that, that fundraising component is especially important, I think, this cycle. Totally. Um, so great advice for campaigns. Any advice for the volunteers in addition to help raise dollars from wherever you can? <laughs> yeah. Uh, uh, I think fun, like, like you said, fundraising, if you have the means and the network, money really matters, especially the earlier the money is, the better because it allows campaigns to plan. And obviously if they're your listeners, they know that uh, you know, swing left makes it really easy for people to put their resources into places where it's going to make a difference. And so I, I don't, I don't really know if there's a better way where if you're not a super wealthy person who could just max out to everybody, like, I don't know if there are better tools to, to make your money go far. So I think fundraising matters. I think two is engagement on social media as exhausting as it is, is going to make a difference in this election, you know? Uh, I think that, you know, Uncle Sal or whatever who posts the conspiracy theory online, uh, oh, it Sal. actually helps to respond. Yeah, <laughs> it, it, it helps to respond. Um, and I think there are, there are two different levels at which you can respond. One is, is more effective than the other, but they're almost two different audiences, right? So if Sal posts something about how, you know, coronavirus is only increasing because we're increasing testing or something like that, right? You can respond with the facts about what's actually true. And now chances are that you're not going to persuade Sal with that, but you're, you may persuade other people who are looking at Sal's post who, who otherwise may just be misinformed by what he's saying. So it is important still to use facts, mm -hmm. but you can't really stop there. I would follow on, and there's a lot of science to this, with some kind of anchoring to be like either like use the shared relationship you have with Sal, which is, you know, where I, my neck of the woods in Staten Island, where I grew up, there's a lot of people dying. There were a lot of people dying, uh, especially back in the spring of coronavirus mm -hmm. to be like now Sal cousin, yada, yada. And then, you know, Mr. Lenti, who's my teacher at my high school taught me to drive. Like that's not a hoax. Like these people died. Uh, and you, you know, you know, my mom, she's a nurse. She's been talking about how full the hospital has been. Mm. So can we just agree that we have a real problem here and that we want everybody to be safe? You know, like anchoring it, like taking out all of the noise and the national parts of the politics and trying to make it as local and personal as possible. Mm -hmm. af either after or before you correct any factual issues. I think like you just got to keep doing it and you got to be exhausted. It's going to be exhausting between now and the election. But I do think getting out there, engaging people because people are persuaded and affected by what's posted on social media, especially if we're talking about Facebook, the older generation, the numbers are telling us that, that older Americans are turning their backs on Trump and some significant numbers potentially. Yeah. I'm always interested in the balance there with engaging, um, with uh, especially extreme opinions on social media uh, and the presence of all these bots and people who are trying to amplify these messages. I'm I'm wary sometimes of responding even to negate something because I don't want to bust it up in the algorithm and make it bigger than it already is. Not that I'm a have any followers that would do that, but um, just as a general right. as a general tactic, you know, can you speak to the balance there? Because even when you're negating something, you're giving it more energy. Yeah. My general rule is if I see a post and I don't see a lot of people engaging, I don't respond to it. If I see a post and already there are a lot of people engaging it, I view like the marginal impact of me getting on it versus somebody else mm. as worth the cost. And like in a, in a way, if you are, if you have a good response and it, it somehow gets boosted up to people's posts, you kind of want that. Like if somebody posts something that's really dumb, uh, 
well, dumb is mean, like something that's really <laughs> incorrect. Yet accurate. Uh, <laughs> obvious, yeah, like somebody posts something that's obviously incorrect and you feel really good about your response and that like you almost want the audience. So that's great. Like let it boost up, you know, like people who are, you know, railing against the government, forcing them to wear masks or something. That's the kind of fight you want. You know, it's almost like you could use, you know, and not, I don't understand the mysteries of Facebook's algorithms and I'm sure they change every day, but you can, you know, you can, you could make it strategic, right? Like, and the more personal you are, the better. So like, if you can like quote unquote ratio somebody on their Facebook by like you piling in and other people seeing it and jumping into and all making good points, it almost turns against the person posting it. And, and more importantly, the mysterious right-wing networks that boost these things, it'll, it'll backfire on them too. I will admit that sometimes I'll see a Facebook post that I know is going to be controversial and I'm going to look at the comments just to, <laughs> just yep. to see the train wreck that's coming. I think it's, a, it, it's, it's such a smart strategy to use that moment. Cause I know a lot of people are like, Oh, this is going to get some good reaction. Let me see what people are saying. And then, oh, there's somebody in here making sense. All right. <laughs> we'll take yeah. it. Yeah. <laughs> the key is not to lose your cool because people, and I have broken this rule a hundred times. <laughs> right. uh, so like nobody's perfect here. Um, but the key is not to name call or anything like that. Like just to keep pushing with the humanity of it all. Obviously, if somebody crosses a line, like you just unfriend them or ignore them depending on who they are and, and what it is. But, you know, like it, this idea of what is a friend is amorphous when it comes to social media. But my general rule is if I'm quote unquote friends with somebody on Facebook, I assume a certain level of relationship. Although I, I can't get in my own head over the past 10, 15 years as to who, why I accepted this person. <laughs> but to my decision to keep them as my friend on Facebook, like I think means that if I'm going on the platform, I have a certain obligation to engage and that if I think somebody's hopeless, I probably should not be friends with them right. on Facebook or anywhere else, you know? All right. Well, I just sent you a friend request while we were speaking, so hopefully you'll accept it. Nice. <laughs> nice. <laughs> it's on the podcast, so, you know, we'll we'll tune in next week to find out if, if Ravi accepts my friend request. Um, yeah, I can now jump on your posts. and, uh, and <laughs> I don't post anything. See, my problem is I, I start – especially on Twitter, I probably compose – and then delete 10 tweets a day on Twitter and then end up maybe posting one or something. I just, uh, um, right. I don't know. I need to be more active. Yeah, on I'm not huge on social media either. I, I find that I'm, I'm thinking deliberately about what I want to use more than the others. Like I already cross off. I mean, I use a lot of Instagram, which is also like an area where a lot of my, my right-leaning friends from Staten Island, they spend time on Instagram they are not as much on, on Twitter. I, I generally don't use Twitter a lot because I feel like it is largely a an echo chamber for the left, uh, which you know, to me is like, it doesn't, there's not a lot of work to be done in the persuasion category uh, on Twitter. And obviously it's also like a cesspool of toxicity. <laughs> so exactly like I, try right. not to, uh, I try not to go on there unless it's just to promote something for work or, or right. you know, post something for the podcast. Facebook, I find more interesting because my grandparents are, in, or my, my only remaining grandparent is on there, and my uncles, my aunts, my neighbors, and Staten Island, and all that. And I do think that as much as I hate Facebook and, and don't trust the people who run the company, it is a very important civic space and a civic battleground between now and the election and beyond. And so I, I definitely don't want to abandon it. Important organizing tool, too. I, I wanted to leave Facebook right before Trump was elected, before the 2016 election, I was like done with, with the echo chamber and, and Facebook, but we do so much organizing. We reach so many people and, and have so many strong groups on there that it's, it's very important in that regard too. Sounds right. So, um, Ravi, we usually close out on a positive note, even though I think there's so much hell to talk about all the time, um, <laughs> but but we do want to fo focus on the on the positive um, on this podcast, and so we'll close out by asking you, um, what gives you the most hope for our future? I think that young people give me hope. I did a a virtual talk for uh, a Rutgers summer 
program for high school students in New Jersey right before this podcast. Mm. And I was just, you know, I gave a little journey through my confusing life. And then I just <laughs> answered questions for 45 minutes. And kids are awesome, you know. And I know this is like a weird thing to say, but I don't use, just to keep on the sort of TikTok, like the the, the, the social media conversation, like I, I go on TikTok every now and then. I've never actually created something on TikTok and I don't even have an account, but you can actually just go on without an account, which is cool and weird. But uh, <laughs> kids are really funny and really smart and mm-hmm. they just have higher expectations of the world than I did when I was their, their age or just about how, just the world should be and they're just so clever and so talented and you know if the world's in their hands uh i'm feeling pretty good well thank you so much for spending this time with us i hope everyone uh probably everyone listening to our show already listens to majority 54 to your show but if if you haven't listened to the the reboot with ravi and jason tune into that and uh thanks again for being here with us Thank you very much. This was fun. Thank you for joining us and for stepping up to take action. This is how we win. We win when we all get involved. And we want to hear from you. Tweet to us at BluesBoySteve and at Mariah underscore Craven. Or shoot us an email at podcast at swingleft.org. Don't forget, it's the last week of our July subscriber push. So be sure to tell a friend and uh, subscribe, rate, and review on Apple or wherever you get your pods. Share on social media and use the hashtag HowWeWin2020. Check out our page at swingleft.org slash podcast. And while you're there, why don't you sign up to volunteer? Thanks so much for being here with us. We will be back with more next Wednesday. See you then. MSW.